Hi, my name is Heather Shorin Yeruso, and this is the Spark Zen Podcast. Thank you for listening. This is the second part of my conversation with Zenju Earthlin Manuel. She is a poet, a drum medicine woman, and an ordained Zen priest like myself in the Soto Zen lineage of Shinryu Suzuki Roshi. Thank you, Zenju, for continuing this conversation with me on the Spark Zen podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Well, let's start with Zazen as this portal to deepen our relationship with the unseen. Why is that important? Well, you want to see into the terror of the world. You want to see into it, not complain about it. You want to know about the human condition. You want to understand the nature of life. And so we can do that with our brains. Here's the nature of life. We just did it. We went into mental health and we went everywhere. But if we were to sit and allow through the silence, a particular wisdom about the body, about nature, about life to come through, we might have a different answer or response than what our mind can give us. So the idea is to bring forth our own wisdom. So, okay, Buddha did his job. And of course, there's no match to some of these teachers from the ancient teachers, but still at the same time, those teachings were to stimulate our own wisdom because it was gonna be obvious we're not gonna be in their time their country, their culture, will be in our time, our country, our, our culture. And so to mind the wisdom, the silence and sitting is needed to help. I mean, it's not the only way. <laughs> Zazen is not the only way, but it's the way I talk about in the book because that is the practice I did to um, see into what I can't see and to not see with just my eyes. To see with the whole body mind, whole body mind, becoming a, not becoming, but revealing its revealing. sensory organ. You mentioned that Zazen shares elements with shamanism. You say self-realization and hand streams, also deepening our intuition mm -hmm. and strengthening our relationship with the wisdom of nature. Could you unpack that for us? Well, shamanism is hard to talk about, just like Zen is, because there's no one thing about it. There's no way to describe it and say that this is how you know it's coming or it's coming through or these kinds of things. It's a decision and an experience one must make on their own. One of the things that shamans do and medicine people, let's just say medicine people who have honed their skills over the years sit upon the earth. I know everyone always asks me, what can I do to bring more of my shamanic <laughs> experiences forth and I just kind of chuckle all the time because it's sit and so <laughs> number one and so to sit upon the earth is to connect to it to feel the body of it the rhythm of it and to know it as life and it brings you into that that vortex that realm to me that we we can't touch on our own and that's what the practice I feel of Buddhism is. Not just Zen, but I only speak of Zen because that's the only practice I've been in on a long-term basis. Well, actually I was in Nishran, but there's Tibetan, there's so many traditions 
that have of shamanic elements, more shamanic elements probably than even Zen. I, I don't know really how to like deconstruct it, you're saying, basically. When it comes to seated meditation, I, I try to focus on, well, how is this liberating? I always try to bring it back to that, bring it back to how is Zazen helping this body mind mm-hmm. feel more liberated? And then of course the collective liberation, right? right. Undoing the collective karma. Right. So when you were talking about these shamanistic elements, I'm curious mm-hmm. how you feel that Zazen as that shamanistic ritual helps alleviate suffering in the here and now. So you asked two questions, really, how in suffering in the here and now, and how does it bring liberation and um, collective liberation and personal liberation? So there's like three questions there. If you have the goal, that's your goal of attaining a liberation personally and collectively, you're going to miss the liberation that Zazen can bring. You're going to miss it because you already have a goal and an idea of liberation personally and collectively. And so when you could release the idea, release the goal of using Zazen as a tool to reach liberation, enlightenment, and all of these kinds of things, that doesn't say liberation and enlightenment aren't in it, because it is. But if you want to reach the kind that you cannot define, that's unsurpassable, that is of suchness, that is, then that's Zazen. That's just sitting and allowing the stillness and the silence to speak and to mold you and shape you and walk you and breathe, breathe you like it's breathing you anyway, it's breathing you now. So allowing it to continue that work upon you. And so we've already asked the ancestors, we made the offerings for that help to do that. We make those offerings every day. We chant the ancestors all the time to help us so that that we can see. So you will begin to see for me personally, once I could understand and see more deeply into the nature of life and the nature of the human being or or any living being, that was helpful in the expansion and creating vastness in my life and how I see the world and how I see myself. Now that in hell is liberating to not be right here so tight and small in my own minefield, but to be more in a, in a vast, more open field. Now, can I measure it? It's not meant to be measured. If you were in any other ceremony, you know, of any other tradition, Buddhist or not, there's no guarantee. You don't walk in the door and say, I'm gonna come out with this. That's a, that's a Western thinking, that there'll be an exchange for what you do. So that's why I always say, right, Zazen's good for nothing because it's, it's, there's no exchange there. And you could walk out with nothing, you know, really. And, and then nothing could be the, the very thing that could create the vastness of your life. So oftentimes liberation is, is concretized. I think I've tried to do that myself and I just tried to do it just now. How I, I concretized it was to place it in my experience of how I felt what liberation is. Is this the liberation of, of the freedom fighters of uh, the civil rights movement? Is this the liberation of the Black Panthers? Is this the liberation that Malcolm X was talking about as we approach his birthday this week? Probably not, because those are different realms, different, different roads 
of our lives, which I've been on all those roads. Any blind spots that we have when we come together in a monastery, those shadows become longer because we're now collectively, now we're in the collective karma of that monastery and whatever we're not addressing individually is also not being addressed collectively. But we're and, still in the collective karma of the world because everybody in right. there from the world. Sure. They didn't just drop out from someplace and dropped into the center. No, what I mean is when, you know, if the head of practice or the abiding teacher doesn't know how to, or feels uncomfortable addressing sexuality or sexual harassment or racism, patriarchy, ageism, whatever it is, yeah. and that will, that will remain unaddressed. And that's what I mean. Those blind spots I know. part of the culture. Yeah. I know, but it can't be addressed that way you're saying it and speaking it. It cannot be addressed like that. And you're and you're dealing with race. This is why I wrote The Way of Tenderness. You don't need a diversity trainer to come in. You don't need them to tell you how to address the problem within the Zen Center because they're not going to bring the practice with them. They're not gonna understand that everyone's in ceremony constantly. So we can talk not from having been in the world and having been wounded by all these things, but we can talk from the rituals in the Zazen, which is part of the ritual, which is the ritual, but talk from the ceremony because you feel different. And you can feel that when you're a Sashin, you're different. You feel different. You are more in that meditative state so that when you do talk about a racial or oppressive act, that the talk comes from there and not trying to school people with the language of the world or not even the language of Buddhism either, but the language of the meditative absorptive state of mind <laughs> that from consciousness. Talk about the Yogacara, like without saying Yogacara. I mean, I've done it with students, it's possible. I mean, a student came to me and said, when I see your face, I think derogatory things. So he, I knew why he felt like he could talk like that with me because they were already saying, be honest if you're white, be honest. And so he was being honest that it was like, oh, I wanted to run out the door. And I said, oh my God, I'm in this tiny room with this guy. What is he talking about? If he's not having a good feeling about how I look, oh no, cause I'm black. So we're having this conversation and I said, your thinking is keeping you from experiencing the wonder of this world. I didn't go in there and start teaching to him about white consciousness and whiteness. That's not my job. He can go get a course somewhere. That's not my job to stop and talk about whiteness. It was my job to tell him about life and the human condition, and that's what I did. And I said, so while you have that, there will always be a block within an obstacle within our experience, the true interrelationship that exists between us, because it does exist, but there is a block. It is clouded. You will, and in that, you will carry that to other people and to other places, even people you don't have any kind of derogatory thinking about when you see them, you're still carrying that. But that's how I think we approach it. We don't approach it with a lesson on um, whiteness. That's only my opinion. I value your opinion. When I was mentioning that, I was thinking more along the lines of what you're saying. Whatever karmic conditioning here has yet to be transformed through the practice, then, then that will affect 
that community, right? So when we all come together and there's parts of ourselves that have yet to be transformed, the harmful parts, <laughs> then when we come together, it's it's even more intensified because that's they're funny. right. So that that's what I was meaning that yeah. when we have, you know, all white bodied people, especially for a long time, it was all white bodied hetero men. That all becomes part of the culture of the organization, any organization. Sure. So I agree with you that it's not, oh, let's get a DEIA professional. Mm-hmm. Not that that can't be helpful, but right. to your point is helpful. how do we speak about it through the Dharma? How do we allow the Dharma to speak to address what's going on? How do we allow the Dharma to address what's going on? How do we? Zazen, where you started. Zazen, but we don't trust it. We don't trust that it's going to guide us to where we need to go. That that sitting is, is, is like a time to just be quiet or something, but it's to guide us. Zazen's good for nothing. So you don't know, really. You don't know what changes, what, where a person has transformed. But you want to measure it and you want the Zazen to bring transformation and you want to see it. You want them to not be supremacist. And we want to, I want to not feel like wounded over internalized or, you know, internalizing oppression. Those are goals that you can have. That's not saying you can't have them, but you don't know what has, what change has transpired. I experienced in a community of women of color where the black women are still on the bottom. I felt still wounded and, and, and left out. I learned this in my experience. I don't care where I go, I'm going to be left out. No matter where I go, there's going to be somebody's not going to like the way I do something, or, you know, or like the way I do something, maybe. But that's why we don't worry about the like and dislike, because we just be too busy trying to be liked. You know, that's our, that's our goal. And I think that's what happens a lot in, in communities where they, they find a way to if I talk this way and be this way, I'll be liked, or they won't see me as a racist, or they won't see me as an angry black person, or you know, all these things we're trying to do. It's all going on in our minds, right? It's all going on there. If we had the pill, we could give it to everybody at all the institutions. We could send it to the White House and give it to Biden so that he would understand better <laughs> something. But we don't have the pill. And that's good we don't, because that's the work. It is our work to continue to deal with white supremacy, to work with it through our own selves, not through the white people. That's my job. I don't work through it through the white people. I don't work through it that way. And I'm the first black teacher who's ordaining black people. I was ordained by a white person. Everybody black's been ordained by a white person or somebody other than black. I won't say everybody had a white person because I don't know that, <clears throat> but I have a feeling that not too many, not, there's not too many black ordaining black people in Zen. We aren't the only ones. We aren't the only ones who are walking this path because it's about walking the path. Not we are the only ones in the world and all that I just said about being the first, oh, who cares? Nobody out there cares <laughs> too much maybe, but I care, you know, but it's, it's not that. It's just everybody's on the path. But if we have a goal, because you had mentioned transformation before. Well, you were saying that Zazen, this is how we can be with the culture of white supremacy. 
I thought for me, I guess what I find fascinating is that even though all these people, including myself, we've all been practicing Zazen for a while, but that hasn't broken down that identity, those identities of white supremacy. You don't know that. How could we say that that transformation has happened when I see evidence that that still rules? Other organizations have done it, spiritual or not. Has it changed anything in the world at Zen or anywhere? I'm sure. I'm sure it's changed. Anyway. Of course, I think there has where to be. Has it, where do you see that it has changed that? That there's a transformation and a change around white supremacy. Supremacy is a human condition, a human way of thinking, a perception that there's something superior and something inferior. Even you have it. You're, I can hear it. You can hear mine. Don't you hear what I think is superior and inferior? Yeah, we can hear it in ourselves. And every, it's everything we see, this, this kind of dog is more superior than this kind of dog. This car is more superior than this, than this car. But all our cars, all our dogs, all our people, all our trees, all are the same thing. But once we start to give power to what we feel is superior, that's when we get like, like we can't see nothing else. Our power to what we see that's inferior, which is the internalized oppressive path, we get power to that. That's what everything is. Everything is that. So that's what I was trying to teach in the way of tenderness. I was trying to teach about superiority and power and inferiority and power in everything, not just race. I learned it through the gateway of race, sexuality, and gender. I learned it in that gateway through Zen about superiority and inferiority and perception of that and giving power to each one, one or the other. Okay. And so that's, that was exciting to me. Because that was a different way than saying it the way Bell Hooks might say it, or Angela Davis might say it, because they're my teachers, and I've listened to them, and I've read them many, many times to understand my own Blackness and queerness. And so it's, it was important for me to come through the path, and, and because I came through it in a, a, a ceremonial and ritualized way. I received the wisdom I, I needed to see, to see and share, and that's why I'm writing. I'm not writing to correct racism. I would be dead in my grave before that happens. And so many people are dead in their graves. We will always be dead in our graves. And even if we were not, suddenly we're, we're the lucky <laughs> group of people that get to see the ending of racism. There'll be something else to math, something else, something else. To that the human being must engage and 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 figure out. It must be because that's the work of this of life. The life isn't to come in and end everything that bothers us. That's called annihilation of everything. That's why they're killing because they're trying to do what you're saying, annihilate it all to get rid of what doesn't feel good or doesn't. And then you get rid of it and you bring some something in or someone in with the same consciousness you know the consciousness of racism and oppression can be in anybody right no matter what color of course the white one's more potent stronger because we've given it that we've given and invoked white supremacy and we continue to invoke white supremacy and we still have it because we invoke it we will always have it as long as we invoke it and when we turn away from it and we stop talking about it as supreme because it is not supreme. It is not supreme. The words should be demolished. The words.
white supremacy. It's nothing supreme about it. There's nothing supreme about black. We start going, okay, we'll just switch to black supremacy. That doesn't <laughs> sound right. So I understand why the words, I understand what's behind the words. I'm not that ignorant. I understand power and what's happened. I've lived it. I lived it all these years. I have lived under the foot of oppression everywhere in church because we weren't the right class in our black church. We were poor and a lot of people were educated. My parents were not. I lived with it in school. I lived with it in college, in university, in grad school. I lived with it at work. I lived with it everywhere. And then you could decide to get out of it or try to annihilate it or try to make everything like I'm going to make this place be beneficial to me or feel good to me. I'm going to make that happen. You will die in the making of that. You will die. I mean, you know that even in relationship, you can't make the other person be what you need it to be to make it a relationship you want. You can walk away from it, from it all, which many people have. It's like, never mind. I didn't walk away. I, I considered it. I considered it. But then when I began to feel, even though it was still all that was still happening that was making me walk away, was still happening, I began to see through what was happening. That's why I say awakening through race, sexuality, and gender. I start something pierced. I don't know what and when. It happened in Zaza, and I know that much. Pierced. I don't know when. I just know it had to be that. Because nobody said something to me. Oh, we love you. Welcome. That That's not that thank you, but that's not going to do it. <laughs> Something pierced me. And that's why I continue to teach and write. I would give that up too. And sometimes I do feel like giving it. I feel disappointed. And I guess I never felt like I was speaking from, oh, let's get rid of it or let's have it be annihilated. I think I'm just feeling. You'd like to see it change. Right. And I guess I was surprised that how long it's been festering here without there being a deep, or maybe there has been. How long has it been festering in you? White, white supremacy? Anything that festers that may cause your relationships in the world or with people and others. How long has it been? I don't know how many lifetimes. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Lifetimes. So that that's, right on point that's right on point and so that's why there's the heart sutra that's why we learn it first so that we can have compassion for all the mucky muck that we're going to be in and are in and we're in <laughs> before we enter the door of any sanctuary mm. doesn't matter what the sanctuary is which i say in the sanctuary book i do talk about it in that book but those can change we walk in and then it what changes and how you know, what are you going to do then? And some people just isolate themselves and still have their spiritual path. That's a different walk. In the book, you say that Zen rituals and ceremonies will give your students an experience of liberation despite oppression. Could you unpack that for me a little bit? So it's not the liberation of civil rights movement, not the liberation of the Black Panthers, not the liberation of climate change activists, not the liberation of 
helping those unhoused, not that liberation. And that's where people get stuck because the liberation that is in the Buddhist teachings is not of the world, it's of the unseen world. And that's why you have to do things that connect to the unseen world, connect you to that kind of wisdom. So it will bring possibly, that's the intent, maybe the vow, but they still come, the, the ones in, that I did the Jukai with, they still come with their problems. You know, we still talk about my problems and our problems <laughs> together. So it's not liberation from, but liberation to be able to engage, not liberation from others, liberation to engage in the vastness and of that kind of freedom. You're not feeling the limitations of the world because the limitations of the world have been imposed upon us from different consciousnesses or people's ideas of what they think they need to do. The box, even our own boxes that we have jumped in. So the limitation's not there. The practice is teaching us to not be in that limitation, not to be an absolutist. That's, you have to go through that, that, that box, that little type space that got created and posed upon through that box. And you know it's still there. So you could fall back anytime you want. But going right through there to absolute experience that cannot be defined, that cannot be measured. If we were to say measure, even beauty's absolute. So we try to measure it though, what beauty is, right? In this world, the world has this idea of beauty. You said Zazen, you start to change your idea of beauty. Things of beauty start to change. You know, so this is trying to pick something a little more simpler. I used to see teacups all the time, and now I see teacups. <laughs> I see it's so different to me after <laughs> practice. So the tea was tea. And then when I began to see the tea as the earth itself, I'm tasting the earth. I can experience the earth when I'm tasting it. That's that that's expansion. So that's not just saying, oh. I know it's of the earth and it's something abstract. It's an experience. And that's when you can maybe discover that, that the tea is more vast than the $1.50 per pound of whatever you bought <laughs> of the oolong. <laughs> whatever you got, it's not as beyond it. The criticism of Zen is to always go to this empty field, but they don't know the empty field is full. And that to go to suddenly we don't see anything. So we're, we don't know what's happening in the world. And that's why you get to people who don't want to engage with oppression or anything of the world, because I don't see the world. I, so I'm colorblind. That, or something yeah, you know, that kind of thing happens because people are trying to, you know, ease their suffering. They don't know they're falling into some trap. People who are relative who say, all I see is this. And people say, I see nothing, have the same suffering. Yeah, then they're missing the middle way. The middle way, and that's another another one of those myths, doesn't mean in the middle. That's a, there is a middle between those points, because there is none, because there's no points. <laughs> so it's not, not the middle. And it's very hard to describe the middle way a lot, but it's not the middle like we know it. Every word in Buddhism is not what it means in the world, not what it means in the practice, I mean, on the path. So the middle is not the middle of a line or the middle of two ends. It's not that middle. It's a way of walking in the world where there's an integration of the relative and the absolute. 
if you made circles, there's that it's that piece in the middle, that little intersection piece. So that's not a middle necessarily, right? If you put two circles together, relative mm -hmm. and absolute right there in the middle, it's that kind of middle, not middle point. It's not halfway. Come halfway, meet me in the middle. And I hear a lot of people use that that way. The way I experience it, it's not, if it were to a point, we would know how to get to that place. If there were a line in, in two ends, relative announcement, yeah, we could come right there. Thank you for, for clarifying that. The old slang came up. Thanks for schooling me. That's, that's how I experience. That's all the teachings. I mean, every other teacher may say something different. So I'm curious about many things, but I wanted to talk about the chanting spells, the Dharanis that you mentioned in the book. You point out that if we don't see chanting as part of ritual, it just becomes rote, but it is actually as part of the ritual of Zazen and that it's not to be performed. It's actually an embodied experience, the practice of ceremonies and rituals, which you're including chanting and Zazen as part of. Could you enlighten us on that? What came up is I got this question just this morning by someone. I get questions on email a lot, especially around this book. I've been getting a lot of questions. So let me say the short of it first, that it's all one ceremony. So it would be like, you know, someone gave you a, a, a recipe and you decided to just do just the flour part and nothing else. You're not going to put no milk in it, no nuts, no nuts. Nothing else, but you're going to mix, 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 mix it up. I got the flour. I got the flour. I got most of the, most of the, that's the biggest part of the ingredients, flour. And so I was telling someone who wanted to practice Zazen alone, can she practice Zazen alone? And I said, she most certainly could. And I said, but however, it's interesting that, that the Western mind and thinking is to take out meditation away, separate it away from chanting and bowing and all these other things that are communal. And, and that's a Western thinking to create an individual type of practice that's individualistic and to watch that and to that the practice comes from people who believed in community and Sangha and communal living. Most indigenous practices and spiritualities are based in communal living not individual. You don't go, I'm going to a Sundance and we're going to do all these and then I'm going to go off and sing all these songs by myself or I'm going to, you know, play the drum by myself. It doesn't work. Most of them, it would never work anyway. It kind of works for Zazen for some reason because we don't see the whole ceremony. We only see Zazen and that's the Western way of thinking and being individuals. So chanting and all the other things, especially chanting, brings that uh, communalism and community together. So we've just been sitting, or you might chant and then sit, whatever way it goes. It's to continue bringing that force together between us that we're making together. It's not just my prayer, not just my zazen, but our zazen, our zazen, and our zazen together, and what it could do to create a transformation beyond what we're thinking beyond what we think we know, beyond what we think we know. So one of the things that I, I invited her to do because I could hear she didn't want to do the institutions and you know that kind of thing, I, I got it. 
and I invited her to create a small circle of folk and to and to sit with them at that time she sits and to sit with them. That's all, nothing else. If they want to chant, they can. I said, but at least be communal about your zazen and to and to bring it away from that Western individual way. There's no path that's individual. <laughs> so to 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 sit together with one or two, three people. And then maybe after a year or two, you can see the people are committed and dedicated. You can uh, offer a teacher to come in for an hour once a month to give guidance. You know, somebody, you know, everyone would agree upon that they would want to hear from and bring them in and then send the teacher away and then go back to sitting. You know, there's the way of doing, you don't have to, you know, way of being in, you know, a communal way if you're going to to do a piece of it, but it's just a piece of it. And I thought that was interesting for me to even tell her that because so many people ask me, will you be my teacher? Answering her opened it up to me that it was more important that I am not just one person's teacher. That one, it could be very oppressive and hierarchical. And two, it it is all about you and you trying to get something from me as a teacher rather than I thought when I invited this woman to bring a teacher in every now and then, said that's the way for the group to ask for a teacher, a group of people to ask for a teacher. That way it's not just about you and your, your personal problems with your you know, partner or your whatever in the world. And it's, it's a different, it's a flip, you know. This is a East, these are Eastern practices. They don't have the same school of thought totally Eastern. And we keep trying to overlay our Western selves on it. When I did a session with Harada Roshi, the Renzai master in Whidbey Island off of the coast of Washington, Mm -hmm. that's the first time I heard someone say that Dharanis were helpful in assisting to experience Kensho. That's right. I never, I never had anybody say that. And, And you say in your book, I believe the secret of the Dharani's medicine remains in the original sound of the voice, not the words of the monk who chants from the mind of Kensho. I haven't even been there to that, to that Zen center, but everybody I know has the one on Whidbey. I've been to Whidbey Island. I love the place, but I've never been to that Zen center. It's my, my, one of my goals to travel there and and to be in, in community with, with them. Well, they chant before they practice Zazen. I do that too. We switched it back, but when we had our center, they would come in and I noticed the students would be asleep before all the students would come in. And I said, I'm not doing this anymore. You know, so I said, so they had to come in, they had to be on time before the incense is offered. So all the things that happened in the Buddha hall, that happens first. That happened first with the doshi and offering and chanting. And then they, and it was, it's such a, it was so profoundly different. And, and silent because there was movement. Basically, that's how we dance, you know, is offering incense, the doshis leading the dance. And, and when you dance and you move before you sit, you're going to have a different experience. When you mentioned in the book about when white colonists saw indigenous people chanting and dancing and ceremony, they had no sense that this was actually a ceremony, that this was a, a ritual that was deep and profound and not just, oh, look, they're dancing around playing a drum. And that just speaks to, of course, conditioning, right? What they're, how they're viewing that through their 
through their lens. Mm -hmm. Through their lives, who they are. A lot of African practices, when they see the gyration, you know, the body, they think that that's sexual and that's not, but it, it, it is and it's not. But the, so the rhythm is sexual in some of them, not all of them. Some are very slow. They're very slow moving African dances that people don't ever, you know, show. Everybody thinks African dances this and, you know, bouncing around and it's not always. So, but then the ones that have the sexual, they saw that and they said, oh, they're very sexual. No, it's, it's a form of movement and their way to move a prayer through the one's whole body and to birth something new. So you use the genitals, which births something. And so they're birthing something new, but without the understanding and, and are seeing it from your own perspective, they're doing something sexual. So I think it's in that all Africans dances are one way and they're not, there's, there's some very, some that are just twirling in slow movement and touching shoulders and, and, and pulling back and waving is very different, you know? So I think that it's important to do the dance, that the little bit of the dance that we have that is transmitted through Zen. There was a visitor from Japan at this time when I was a Shusou and he came and I remember coming to him in the morning, Jundo as Shusou. And then I was doing the, leading the sessions up in the Buddha hall, the service in the Buddha hall as well. And he came to me, he said, you move beautifully, just beautifully. He said, I wish I could take you to Japan and show those stupid boys how to move. I smiled, but I really knew what he meant was not so much that I could move so well. I do like to dance. I like the movements of Zen. I like the, to move into it and to feel it and not to rigidize it. I, I don't like that feeling in my body because we're all dancing, even though we're not all standing up doing it necessarily. And so that's how I had embodied it. So the dance goes with the spells, goes with the, all of it. And I just thought he was just not talking about how great I was, but that he could feel the zazen. What do you feel is lost when those rituals and ceremonies just become rote and they're performative and they're not embodied? And a broader question is, what do you feel has been lost in society that we don't have, at least I wasn't raised with any other than Roman Catholic rituals, I guess, but the lack of ritual, the lack of evoking the sacred when I'm holding my teacup. Well, we're disconnected and we have shootings. We're disconnected with each other, even though on an absolute level we're connected, but we don't know how to invoke it. We have lost our rituals. We have lost them over time. And let's say all of them weren't the best. So maybe some of them went away because they needed to go away. But the ones that open us and awaken us and bring transformation and stillness and silence, you know, it's nice to come find and discover places where that still is. In Zen, it still is. These are passed down. You know, there is a lineage of them, of this, of this movement. There is a lineage of stepping back and stepping forward and bowing so many times. That's a, there's a lineage of that. And I lean toward practices that have a lineage, that have ancestral wisdom in them. In the book, you quote a scholar saying that 
magical practices of Buddhism have really been not studied and that Buddhism is idealized as a rational religion. How is that detrimental? Or do you feel that that's detrimental to, you must feel it's detrimental in some ways because you wrote a book about the shamanic bones of Zen. Right. I feel that it makes, that's where the, the ropeness comes in and the habitual practice or even militarism in, is, is in it because there is a base of, of the samurai and part of that practice. And so what, what becomes the cream in the practice, what gets um, pushed up and presented? I think what happens when you're not seeing everything as a ritual is that you get caught in rules, that everything is a rule. And, and that if you don't do it that way, something really bad is going to happen and nothing really bad ever does. And so you lose perspective and you lose, I think you also lose interest and you lose a sense of quest and inquiry and discovery because you're just following the rules. And as you so again, I rung the bell at the wrong time. I don't know if I told that story already. Were you she saw at city center? <laughs> Rung the wake up bell an hour early. You're not the only she saw who's done that. <laughs> I know I'm not, but it's amazing how it just rocked the world and it shouldn't rock the world. It shouldn't rock the world. It should be okay. Now the bell's an hour early and it happened Suzuki Roshi. It happened when he was alive and there's a story about it. Everyone knows the story. And so the bell was rung early. And he got up and then when everybody finally got up at the regular time and they came down to the Zendo, when they came down, Suzuki Roshi was already sitting there. He came when the bell was rang. Mm -hmm. Everybody else came according to the schedule, what was right, (laughs) whether, you know, yeah, right. That's not Zen practice. He, he, He presented Zen practice. Come, come when the bell is rang. One person was chanting and they couldn't find the echo. We have the, the Kokio book. Couldn't find the echo or something. I don't know what was going on with the books. You know how the pages sometimes <laughs> moved around. And so couldn't find the echo. So there was this big silence after the chant. Everybody in their minds do the echo so we can get to leave the Zendo. And so <laughs> that's where everybody's in the future. So he's fumbling through the book so much that he can't, he probably is lost <laughs> where to chant. Everything is gone, right? Because he wasn't there maybe in the, in the ceremony. But why couldn't this person, you know, just say, we have chanted the things we always say that brings joy to our lives. And we pass this joy into the world so that all may feel the blessing of the Heart Sutra. You can make it up. I think to your point about the rules is the fear of making a mistake. I'm not doing it right. I'm going to be criticized. That's not good. That's all there. Because I remember once when I was the chant leader of the Kokyo at Tassahara, when I was on the, the Doan Rio, I chanted the echo for noon service, but it was the evening. Mm. And when I noticed it, I just kept going because it's the echoes, the echo, right? I mean, it was just an expression. It's just words and nobody noticed. And, and when I was working in the stone office at Tassahara, we did exactly what you mentioned there. We all would take turns being the Kokyo and making up echoes on the spot. 
just to what's coming up for us in that moment. And it was really wonderful practice to let go of, oh, I have to stare at this echo and read these exact words, because then it does become performative rather than embodied. Yeah, that brings chills. That's, that's the way. And it's okay to read it. But if you've been there for a long time, and you read those echoes, like you've been there 12 years, and you've read that same echo, it's time for you to stop reading that echo, you know, let the echo rise out of you. But we're not given that free reign, that vastness. And I think that that's some of if we can think about what we're doing as ritual, we would we would do more. But I understand it's a way of like, in case it gets all uncontrolled, right? But what's gonna happen? Well, the bells might not be rung on time. I could see that, or we won't know if this will roll down to three bells or roll down to nine, you know? So I, I get that, I get that part because I train, I'm training my students. Sure, and yeah, so- I mean, there's there's the, here's the container for the mind and body when you're on the Doan Rio to pay attention and study the self when there's a mistake or what what's coming up for you while you're doing it. And then how is it that that lack of, how is it that we, we don't learn to trust the body? I think that's what comes up. Is well, that we, we don't even trust the practice because either you're on Dawn Rio, you are leading that ceremony. You are it. You are bringing the juju. You are the juju. And if you can't feel it and bring it, and if you're only just paying attention to yourself, which is good, but if that's it, then it becomes very like a tiring, exhausting, especially if it's a sashine. But if you're, you know, doing it every time you come to that bell, it's like you ring it and, and something else comes through you. I'll, I'll never forget when I started noticing that when I heard the bell, it's, and I don't know if it, hap- it would happen now, but it, would hap- it was happening often. I would hear the bell and cry. I had no idea what's going on. Yeah. Yes. I had an experience like that, not at Tassahara, but when I was working that Nordic track where you're doing like a cross country skiing mm-hmm. and I was listening to the Mozart soundtrack and there's, I don't know, there's which piece it is, but the oboe is like really high. Like it's this vast sound from the boundlessness of the world and it just struck me and I just, my whole body just started weeping. Yeah. There was, this was way before Zen, but I was doing a lot of yoga and meditating. You can get these experiences outside of Zen. Zen's just sure. one, but I feel that it, that you, when you have those experiences to know that it's, it's, it's going to go with you forward in expanding your life. So that was, that's an expansion. Like you said, you were aligned. And, and you probably didn't even know you weren't. And then, and then here comes boom. And so, whoa, you know, so you don't know. And so like, oh, I, oh, there, there, there is weeping in that tone, that sound. And, and then it just opens your life up like a, like an ocean, like a, like a break in the ocean or something. How would you like to bring this to a close? There's so many other things uh, we could talk about. We didn't talk so much about making offerings to the ancestors, which, yeah. I think for me, I never really thought about until I started practicing Zen and actually until I started studying more of my own ancestry. And really that seems to be much more of an indigenous practice than the way I was raised in my Roman Catholic, Irish and Italian lineage. You know how we make offerings from the um, medicine bowl? 
at the end of the orioki, the water, praying on that little bowl of dirty water we see is dirty water. Some people drink all of it and, and just like, wow, you don't drink it all. You, even if you're thirsty, just leave a little bit, get your water later because it is for the ancestors. That water goes out to the outside, to the ground, to the earth, the, the most biggest ancestor of it all, beyond Buddha. That's when we, that's when we go beyond Buddha. <laughs> we go beyond all those people we chant about with that little bitty water. To go out and do that and give it to the tree and give it to the earth. So making offerings is, is a way of saying, I'm not here because I got here by myself. There's some lineage of, in every way, not just bloodline, in every way that the sun and the moon and my people got me here in this moment. And I acknowledge that. What I teach and what I sit with right now is not me. It's not because Zinju Earthland Manual is so brilliant. No, she's not. She has gathered and is a keeper of. That's what they mean by keeper of the wisdom, a keeper of wisdom. And that's, that's a call if you want to be that. And so that's what I do. You know, I don't know necessarily if it's all, I have it all correct in my mind. I only can talk about, that's why I only talk about my experiences in the book. They're very memoirish because I have to talk about where I got that from. I got it from where I understood the teachings. So I tell you the experience from where I understood it. Why do you think that the magical, mystical, shamanistic aspects of Zen Buddhism have been lopped off. I want to say that they're still there, traces of it, like trace fragrance just went by, traces of the old. Because if it, if it weren't, then I would not have experienced the practice in the way that I have. So there are traces of it. And if you are astute enough and sit long enough, you will be able to draw in that trace of it. And I did. I most certainly drew in it, drew the trace of the practice, the fragrance of that practice in. And so I talk about many reasons in the book about why it might, you know, we might kind of stay away from this kind of magical, shamanic, mystical, divine, and spiritual or whatever. And I, one is I think that at the time when Buddhism was growing in this, in this country or in the Western world period, they wanted it to fit, wanted to be able to still fit in some way and not be fit in with the dominant Christianity that was going on to be able to do the practice without being, I guess, shamed or ridiculed or whatever happens, persecuted for doing something different. The Westerners who were bringing teachers and, and Buddhism over, even though there was already Buddhism here, right, in the country by all Asians that were already living here. We didn't go to them for it. We didn't get it from them. We went and brought some folk in, folks that we could shape and tell how to do it the way we do it, you know. And so that, that, that kind of, I think, created a loss too, because I'm sure the teachers ran up against how much to give the, the white Western world of their, of their practice and whether or not they should even do it or not, because this is their, you know, part of their culture. And then also, which happens in all the indigenous practices, they have to think this out. I think the most important thing, and the most important thing was for Zen was Zazen. That was it. That is the main ritual that they gave us. And, and then added the chanting and the bowing and all these things. But as you see, there are no new Asian teachers coming to this country to teach. That's, that stopped somewhere. 
along the way. So there was a disconnection about how they practice and how we took the practice on. I know this for sure. And talking to one Japanese uh, teacher and how he, there are too many brown robes that were just giving brown robes away, you know, and I agreed. I agree. Why do we have a brown robe? It's given at a time of a particular path. You're at a place in your life, I'll say, on the path that you can even give a teisho, which is not like the Dharma talks we give, to give a teisho from the seat of Zazen. So basically, you're a diviner. And I, I know this because I am a diviner. <laughs> so these, this is another thing why I know about different, why I see and feel different things in the practice. So you're, t- you're, you're doing it from that place, not from what you read, what you want to introduce from what you read, which is fine. It's just one way of teaching. But there's another way that's more of, of the shamanic element of the more of the divine way um, where you can teach through the Kensho. And my teacher, Zinke Blanche Hartman, used to always tell the story that Suzuki Roshi's wife would run around and tell everybody, you know, he has never had Kensho because that was so important. It was an important piece to their culture and to, to, to the practice. And brown robe is like, they're like 20 steps above brown robe. I don't know how many, but we're still at, we're still don't have the complete transmission of, of Soto Zen even. We've only got a little bit. Yeah. Well, I'm grateful for the transmission of Zazen and all the, all the other rituals and ceremonies of the practice, because it's definitely transformed my life. And do you have any closing words to people who might be on the fence about jumping off the hundred foot pole and starting to practice uh, Zen? You have to enter that gateway without all that you perceive of the practice, what you think you, you hear of it. Today, many people feel it is a practice for white men. They do feel that. That's because that that's what you see, right? What they think they see or they've heard. And never, another reason why I wrote the book, you know, that it has nothing to do with that in the sense that who is coming and when they come and who's coming. I feel come with, as you would come to any a new relationship, to come to all teachings of Buddhism, whether you come to Zen or not as relationship. And I use that a lot in in my teachings to see it as a discovering and learning about someone you're considering to be your beloved and that the teachings could be your beloved and to come that way. You're going to walk with it, talk with it, learn it, and then eventually hold hands with it. And then maybe it will die away from you too in the end. It may, but at least you have entered it in, in discovered it, not only Zen itself, but the teachings of Zen as your beloved, so that you see yourself eventually. That's where the hand may drop when you see you are the beloved. That's why that term is so beautiful from, you know, the the poets, you are the beloved. You will see that instead of decided, I'm the beloved. You're like, okay, that's from your mind, but you will see in loving a path and loving the teachings you will see yourself, not the psychological things. You will see this, this radiant self. Yeah. The radiant self, the profound voiceless wisdom that connects each one of us to every, that's right. Every being sentient and non-sentient through the three 
times. And so right, in the, right in the midst of it all. Right in the midst of the muck. Right in the midst of the muck, the lotuses. Well, That's thank right. you, Zenju, for being here with me and having this wonderful conversation, which has spanned over a number of hours over a few weeks. Yeah. So thank you so much for your time and your teaching and your presence and your joy. You have so much joy and warmth. It just radiates through your whole body and uh, that beautiful smile that you have. So thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please support me by subscribing to my Spark Zen newsletter and follow me on Twitter at Spark Zen. The opening and closing music is courtesy of my friend Jeffrey Ledesma Cantu and Alexis Gerogopoulos. Thank you for listening. <laughs>